Welcome to Achieve Wealth through value-add real estate investing. This is the show where the guru hype is banned and you get direct insights from commercial real estate operators. If you're a passive investor, this show can help you better understand investment opportunities. And if you're an active investor, the lessons from each episode can help you to become more effective in your own deals. Now, here's your host, investor and author, James Kandasamy. Hey, audience and listeners, this is James Kandasamy from Achieve Wealth Through Value at Real Estate Investing Podcast. Today, I have Sakar Kale from uh, Baltimore area, and uh, I'm happy to have him here because he's uh, one of the guys that you, who have done very well uh, building up uh, his portfolio in uh, around 200 single-family uh, houses uh, on his own, right? So 200 ho- houses, that's crazy, right? And after that, he's doing a, you know, a multifamily gig as well. So, hey, Sakar, welcome to the show. Thank you, James. I appreciate it. Uh, I, I respect your content and the, you know, all the work that you and your wife do. So I, I definitely respect everything that you guys do. I know it's a, it's a hard work, so I appreciate you having me. <laughs> yeah, I'm sure. I mean, you know, right? You have 200 uh, single family houses. I mean, when I started in real estate, uh, I mean, you're a technologist like me as well, right? Uh, sure, sure. <laughs> and uh, when I started real estate, it was very amazing on how you know simple calculation in single family houses can make you know sure. eight to nine percent cash on cash, right? Absolutely. So, um, and that's a big deal. I mean, if you can see something very proven, um, that's very important for you to go dig deeper because that makes you money, right? Compared to series and all that, right? So Absolutely. tell me, tell me. I mean, you immigrated to this country in 1997, right? Sure. Uh, start mm-hmm. your masters. Yeah. And um, I think you, you got some layoff and after that you want to look for some stability and, uh, and you've been investing since 2000, right? So tell me, tell us, how did you, you know, transition from being a technologist to how did you find a passion in real estate? I know, I know. Well, thank you. Um, it is, you know, pretty much one house at a time type of story, uh, James, that, um, uh, you know, I came in 97 and did my MS through Clemson University, got on the job. And I think it was like first or second year, mm-hmm. um, you know, you're working hard, you're as a consultant traveling, whatnot. And, you know, typically as uh, folks uh, in IT would know that you roll off on Friday and suddenly, uh, you know, you don't have a project, but around that 2000 timeframe when that downturn came along, everything was all the companies were cost cost cutting and we didn't know because we were all on projects all the time but for me as young as young as i was uh, back then uh, we roll off on friday and monday morning we go into our office and by 10 o'clock all uh, 12 of our consultants that rolled off the project were laid off and at the time i was engaged uh, to be married in i think the december and that was like april at that time when i was laid off and it was an unbelievably rude awakening that uh, i don't have any control on my uh, future at all you know and at the time uh, now just let's uh, tying back to the real estate story is that 
in my family, we have a lot of real estate back in India, where I'm from. My sister-in-law is one of the major developers in my uh, town. Uh, my, um, you know, my mother has uh, invested a lot in lots. I personally own a lot of real estate in uh, India as well. Uh, so the story connected here as well as to hey, how can a uh, person uh, with, uh, you know, moderate means can start investing into a uh, single family or, you know, any type of real estate for that matter, right? Uh, and back then it was 2000, uh, you know, I was studying for my architecture and all that, uh, which is, you know, like systems architecture. So I saw a uh, ad for Carlton Sheets. Uh, not many people rec recognize that name now, uh, but Carlton Sheets uh, is one of the gurus from, uh, you know, sort of the 80s uh, era. And if you see his content, it's uh, analogous to what happens uh, still now as far as cash flowing real estate, things like that. Uh, and, and folks who studied real estate during that era will also uh, you know, equate to a name called Ron Legrand. Ron Legrand is another huge name uh, who has done thousands and thousands of transactions into all sorts of, uh, uh, you know, uh, properties. Uh, and whether it's single family, multifamily, uh, lots, development, commercial, uh, lease options, things like that, you name it, right? So, I started back then. I mean, it wasn't an era of podcast or bigger pockets, YouTube, none of this was there, you know? And where that equated me was that, then I got transferred over to Maryland area where I found my full-time job. And I quickly discovered that uh, Baltimore was a town where the cash flowing numbers still work, you know? And then I started, you know, I think my first purchase was like around 2001 timeframe. And that's when the story began. And when I realized the power of cash flow and pretty much, as I said, like one house at a time, I would buy uh, during the, uh, and of course we all know what happened in the 2008, 2009 crash, right? And at that time I quickly learned that yes, the prices have gone down. And in that post 2008 era, we bought a lot. I mean, I'm talking buying houses like 12 to 14 houses a month. Uh, and, and those were the real times that I would, I mean, we were buying so much that I was losing track of when my closing dates were coming up. I literally had a notepad where I would write the addresses, the price and all of that. And, and I mean, it was so crazy at the time that the, the uh, you know, the houses and the prices were so good that we would buy the house and basically sit on it because we would have, priorities that we were really rehabbing and things like that. So, uh, I mean, basically I did the double duty that I would, uh, you know, still work at my IT job and slowly one by one still buy houses. Uh, my wife has been a very much an able partner. So uh, all along, so, you know, right now we own just about 200 houses and bunch of mid-size apartments and whatnot. So all of that, uh, you know, combined with an active uh, partnership uh, and able help from my wife as well. So just like yours, you know, uh, so we, uh, you know, we went through and we did the heavy value adds, repositionings. We do a, a ton of voucher-based uh, uh, housing, whether it's Section 8 or many other type of voucher programs. So that that's in general how it is. Uh, I mean, it's, it's a very, uh, what do you call, uh, on the ground, boots on the ground, uh, doing good work, providing value to people, 
uh, where we do right now is we only do uh, like premium rehabs, whether it's uh, granite countertops, all refinished uh, kitchens, bathrooms, basements, things like that. So uh, it's not a typical rehab wherein, you know, you're just painting or changing light fixtures, things like that. We are really going in changing in plumbing, electric. Uh, so on an average on some of these houses, we will be spending uh, after acquisition, we would be spending somewhere close to 30 to 40,000 on an average just to, you know, get that house to that level, basically. And we've been very successful at it, actually, you know, and, and where we stand right now is that, uh, you know, obviously, many, many years have gone by. Uh, in the initial years, I would do the minimal and then come to find out after two, three years when your tenant moves out, you're going back and redoing everything again, you know? So it's, it's for lack of a better word, right? So whatever you would have done two years ago, you would have completely sort of uh, lost a, a, a for yourself. So I learned that hard way, but now what we do is we do the entire house properly uh, as far as mechanicals and things like that. And we can certainly go into details, but now it's at a point where even if your tenant gets uh, moved out, you're doing, you know, like very minimal uh, painting and things like that and changing over to the new tenants. So that that's kind of a high level view, uh, but it's all uh, years of hard work uh, doing the right thing, whether it's tenants, contractors, lenders, things like that. Uh, I mean, I say this on a very, very much on a daily basis all the time is that just do the right things and, you know, things kind of fall in place and things will, you know, work, work out, you know? <laughs> yeah, that's crazy. I mean, that's good that you and your wife work like me and my wife, right? Uh, sure. That's really good. I mean, it's, it's, it's a partnership, right? And, and um, so before I, before I move further, you know, I'm sure a lot of my listeners are thinking about Baltimore. Isn't that the 10x uh, murder rate compared to the other US side? Right. So is that true? Uh, it is true. It is true. I, and where I think you have to separate is that as an investor, you all have to believe in yourself, right? So there's always a town or a submarket, as we call it. There's always areas where you don't want to be. And then there are always areas you think that, geez, there's so much good value and there's so much, you know, common sense that you should uh, go in and invest. So Baltimore in general is made up of so many neighborhoods in general, right? So you have uh, bad parts and you have so many good parts wherein a lot of good people, the mayors and, you know, lots of known politicians also live uh, in those areas as well. So you get all shades of uh, neighborhoods there. And my consistent uh, sort of record has been is that I have always been of the belief that you like people live in a neighborhood first and then in your house. And what that means uh, or what that translates into is that you have to be in a good neighborhood first. You know, there's no such thing as having a great house in a very bad or a crappy neighborhood. You know, nobody would want to live there, right? So you wouldn't want like, you know, a bunch of liquor stores or abandoned houses or people hanging out on the corners and things like that. That's not a good sign of any of a good neighborhood, right? So what I want to maybe, you know, perhaps uh, kind of share with a lot of viewers and listeners is that every city will have those struggling, you know, uh, neighborhoods of sorts, right? So you don't want to depend on, you know, what the news on your newspaper or the headline of your, uh, uh, you know, 6 p.m. or 9 p.m. news is. You want to believe uh, that 
yes, you know, what are the right neighborhoods and the cash flow metrics? Do they work or not? You know, and then based on that, kind of do your foot study, you know, understand which are the good neighborhoods and then go about that, you know, and, and that's what I have consistently done is that gone in good neighborhoods consistently paid more and more than what I used to before, right? So you go in a good, better neighborhood, you're buying, you know, properties that are much more expensive, but I've always believed in the sort of the buy and hold principle, right? So I would go into these expensive neighborhoods uh, uh, relatively, uh, as you would call it, and still would go in and still do our sort of uh, proprietary rehabs. And boy, I mean, we have been mega successful. I mean, uh, I mean, on an average, our tenants don't move out like four or five years is like really automatic. I mean, you know, our standard uh, lease is like literally two years minimum on some of these houses and things like that, which is which is very much uncommon in the multifamily, like, you know, yearly mm -hmm. lease is what we go by. But on the house side, you would easily find that two years, if your house is great uh, uh, in a good neighborhood, like two years is a very uh, modest number to stay by. And, and people love to renew, stay on. I mean, you have a good property management, things like that. So people really love to stay on on those. Got it, got it. So I know, I want to go back to how you get started, right? Because you hmm, are sure. a technology, yeah, your family had a lot of real estate background in India and sure, you, you sure. have a lot of things. So at what point or what data did you use in the US while you're working as a technology? So what was the first thing that you saw that said, hey, maybe I can do this here in the US too? What, what, was, the, what was the data that you see in the houses or you know, any, any parameters? What was that? Sure. So... Uh, you might find it interesting, uh, James, is that uh, at the time I was not very savvy as that. That's the honest answer. You know, huh? I used the data saying, okay, I can make the cash flow. The neighborhood looks great. And obviously I networked heavily on the real estate investor association here as well. And I found out, you know, what people were doing and things like that. That, that was sort of the elementary understanding of okay, the neighborhoods and the cash flow numbers work. This is how it's done here. Mm -hmm. And that's how I got started. Like that was my first maybe three, four, five houses uh, back then, you know. But then I think as a few years rolled by, it was very interesting that I would see um, Memphis, Detroit, uh, you know, some parts of Tennessee uh, and things like that. Uh, these are sort of the darling states or cities, as everyone knows, uh, that these are heavy cash flowing states, uh, those who are, you know, sort of familiar with those stats, right? And I would take that uh, data and sort of compare with uh, what I was doing in-house. And my numbers were surpassing even the you know, the nicest uh, charts or the top two or three of them, right? So this went on things, I think, 2004, five, uh, I believe. And I think around 2006 or seven is when Baltimore came on, on the map. Uh, I mean, I, and I think uh, I haven't seen the latest stats, but at the time I would clearly remember that Baltimore was one of the top 10 or one of the top seven cities to invest at that time. And, and it's one of the stories that you have your own intuition that you understand that, okay, 
your math is working better than what the charts are showing you. And sure enough, as we all know, the stats somehow lack what happens on the street. It was one of those stories where you're seeing something and experiencing something, but the stats are not yet showing you. And sure enough, after two years, Baltimore was right on the charts, uh, right there uh, among the top. And, and I was feeling it because I was seeing the results on the street. And, and of course, and then I doubled down. And of course, 2008 and nine happened and the prices, I mean, the amount of foreclosures, short sales that were there, um, were absolutely there. And, um, and, and, and all that, what that meant was I was using all of this data and stuff like that. But uh, to going back to your question, that's not how I got started, but I got wise enough to understand what the data was showing me after. So uh, I was a rookie, but I quickly learned. <laughs> yeah, yeah. And the numbers doesn't lie, right? So it's Absolutely. a very straightforward thing. So basically, so 2000, what, 2003, 2004, and then you went to 2008. Did the crash help magnify your acquisition of houses? Uh, it did. It did. It did. Okay. And... And it's a hindsight, I should say, right? Uh -huh. uh, and what I mean by that is that uh, I experienced what the crash did, right? Uh, and I saw the opportunity, but then one of the things that I think people always forget is the crash always comes with a problem with the credit, meaning just like as we are going through the COVID pandemic, you know, we are seeing all the bridge lenders are out, Fannie Mae has all these interest reserves uh, and all these requirements, right? In 2008 was absolutely similar. Like when 2009, 10, 11 came along, all the banks were out. Uh, you're talking like major banks were completely out of lending. If you were calling uh, the bank saying, hey, I'm a real estate investor. I invest in rental properties. Uh, people would look at you saying, you, you are so full that why are you even like, don't you know what's happening on the street? I mean, that's, that's, and I clearly remember at the time is that I had a running sheet of uh, banks in Maryland uh, pulled, I think I pulled it from mortgage bankers or something like that. Uh, and I would go, pages and pages. I literally had about 16 or 17 pages worth of sheets. And um, to answer to your question, uh, it was a lot of hard work. And I didn't know that, okay, I am in a credit crisis. I was almost thinking that, oh, geez, you know what? I don't know why all these banks are not lending. I mean, I knew that, okay, I had a great job. I make great income. My properties are cash flowing. Everything is renovated. But boy, nobody wants to finance. And I, I did not understand the full context of, okay, because of the market crash, there is a credit crisis right now. I did not have that intelligence back then, but I was doing what I could and I kind of hustled and obviously found some credit unions and things like that. So I kept the sort of the torch, uh, uh, sort of, uh, I kept the baton moving, I should say, and, and I got through it. But that's an interesting dynamic that, I wasn't smart enough back then saying that, hey, you know what, this crash is really helping me. What I, all I knew was, yes, things have crashed. I can see that there are just so many good deals out there. And, and I mean, just to take that story forward, I would chase the realtors at the time that, hey, can I get the lockbox or can I get a showing time and all that? But I was finding that, uh, you know, I was always uh, sort of hesitant or perhaps reluctant. Uh, I mean, realtors were hesitant to do me the showings because the guy wants to see 10 properties in one day. I mean, realtors would go crazy that uh, Mr. Sakar, we could not even, you know, kind of 
get the lock boxes or many of the properties would fly off the market and things like that. And what that meant actually, James, is that I had to become a realtor myself, you know? So I took the education. I became the realtor. I, I mean, I'm still a licensed realtor now uh, that I became realtor myself. So I was controlling my own destiny. Every time I would go in the MLS or HUD or Fannie Mae, HomePath, any of the properties would come on. I would submit contract sight unseen because I was so confident on the streets, the houses and the blocks that I was investing in because pretty much I would know those things, you know, like the back of my hand uh, or, oh, you know, I would have existing properties on those streets or on adjacent streets. And once you know, have all that knowledge, oh boy, I mean, watch out. I mean, that's how big deals happen is that people have precise intelligence and know-how and they know what their capabilities are and they know uh, they can gauge that risk. It's all a risk mitigation or uh, taking the risk in an intelligent manner. It, that's, that's, that's how this game gets played. And I was buying houses sight unseen at, back then. And realtors would call me mad saying, Mr. Sakar, you haven't seen the house. We don't see any showing uh, on our sheets that when you have looked at the house, we don't have any stats as to when uh, you or your entity has gone in and seen the house. Are you sure you're going to close? And I would, I would all the time tell them that, hey, there is no law on the books that you have to be, uh, you have to have a showing or you have to go inside to purchase a house. You know, there's, there isn't anything still, you know. So I could still buy a, a house site and scene as long as you can close and kind of see the deal through. That's all it matters, you know. And and and, and that's what uh, I mean. Kind of going back to your question is that yes, I mean that's how we did it. I mean we understood what it was, but uh, you know those were in a relative uh, progression of your career, if you want to call that, James. Right? I mean you're still young as you are going, you are evolving and things like that. So I, I, I sense the market was down, but the credit was horrible. I mean, you, you wouldn't get any financing and things like that, but we got through it. And, 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 you know, obviously I was using private money as well at the time. So we would buy a lot and all that. So it was all about, you know, doing the right thing and kind of moving on to one project after another. And you build that momentum slowly, but surely. And once you build that momentum, uh, boy, I mean, really good things happen, you know? Yeah. Yeah. Real estate. I mean, I don't know how many people don't realize this. First of all, a lot of realtors doesn't know what investment houses are, right? I mean, they sure. don't know much about investment. They are more of a buy, sell, transaction people, make money on the commission and move on to the next one. Right. 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 Uh, second is uh, real estate do provide a lot of different opportunities for people, for a person who's willing to think differently, right? Sure. I mean, sure. yeah, <laughs> yeah you, you, you find it very hard to get, you know, banks to lend to you and right. you went through a different way, right? The same right. thing with me when I was doing my single family houses, uh, I was doing hard money loan and after that going to the Fannie Mae loan at some point I say, okay, forget about the hard money. Let's go look for private lenders sure. who are normal people who are going to give me a much lower interest rate because for them, they are happy, right? They give 8%, they're done rather than going to hard money, 13, 12% with a three point fee and all kind of things. Right. right so, right. so you do things differently and that's allowed in real estate, right? So, Absolutely. so much of creative stuff you can do, not like stocks, right? Stocks is like, you, you see what's happening. You put the money, it disappears into the cloud and maybe it goes up, maybe it goes down. You never know, right? And someone right, is right. controlling, right? Whereas real estate is you are the top of the food chain. I, I totally agree with you. And I, I'll share something interesting, you know, uh -huh. that whole philosophy of doing the right thing, right? So 
there's this whole concept that, okay, the private lenders have to come in, they have to come inside, inspect your houses, how you're doing, mm. do a thorough inspection. Are you really doing what you're supposed to be doing? Mm. In my entire career, my hard money lender only came the first time. Mm. Uh, first time when he came, he came in the living room and he saw what mayhem was going on inside, you know, because <laughs> I was ripping everything down and I was doing all kinds of crazy stuff. And my philosophy always has been is that do the right thing, whether that means for the tenant, the banks, the inspectors and whatnot, you know? So once he came in and he saw that, oh boy, this, this guy is like completely off the charts, meaning he's doing like over and beyond as far as what things need to be done. And I always welcome the inspections, you know, that's never an issue, but the whole idea is, in any interaction, for example, you know, like whether you're talking to your lenders, your tenants and things like that, all you're trying to do is adding value to that interaction, right? So how you can help, how you can sort of, you know, do the best you can. And that has always been my mindset is that, um, but going back to, you know, what I was saying is that once he saw, he's like, oh boy, Sakar, I'm not going to waste my time coming to your houses and things like that. And that relationship, James, continued for probably a good, uh, you know, 15 some years. And hmm. now we don't use them as much, but that's, that's the kind of level you get to is, I mean, same thing with lenders. Like once lenders find out that, oh boy, you know, this guy does uh, a really a great job. I mean, you know, I can go on stories and stories like this, but once someone knows that, okay, what type of work you do, what level you play at and things like that, whether that's inspectors, appraisers. I mean, we deal with a lot, as I shared, I, we deal with a lot of voucher-based uh, clients, uh, which is Section 8 or lots of other house, uh, housing programs. Uh, in Baltimore, we have a saying that, okay, if it's Mr. Sakar or Ms. Anuz, which is my wife's house, it has a certain brand to it, is that it's, it has a certain, uh, you know, like a style, a level of finishes and things like that. And that has done wonders that, I mean, you know, people will call you saying, hey, uh, someone, uh, you know, like a lot of these housing programs will uh, try to, you know, do like a displacement, like someone's house catches fire or, you know, has some, uh, you know, life event that they need to uh, be, you know, placed within 24 to 48 hours. We get those calls, believe me or not. And it's a very humbling feeling that you are able to be in that position where, you know, People can say that, okay, we relate to you in a certain way as far as, you know, what your quality is. And it's a nice, it's a nice position uh, uh, to be in. And as I say, you know, like for someone who came to this country with almost no money and uh, fast forward, let's say 20 some years now, and you are into this stage, I mean, I feel very blessed and grateful that uh, you come to this stage. And as I shared, you know, it's a lot of hard work to get here, you know. <laughs> so what, but what do you... Uh, before before I forget my question, so I mean, you bought a lot of land in India, and, sure. and I think it, it appreciated and all that, right? Compare mm -hmm. that experience to buying deals in the U.S. Which one's easier? Um, so there are a couple of things, James. It's like one is the pace of development. Uh, and the systems, the rules and things like that, right? Uh -huh. So you could buy something, uh, you know, let's say overseas, right? And not have, you know, good rules and laws and kind of, you know, to basically like, let's say if I have lots and things like that, right? So uh -huh. you would sell that and that's when you would get it, right? 
but in us right you whether it's multi-family single family and things like that right you can have the cash flow numbers work for you you know there are not that many countries where you would find that these cash flow numbers work uh, i mean in fact back where i am in india like these cash flow numbers that work here they don't work there you know so those are the major differences then ob- obviously you have the support of let's say the rent court and things like that, where if someone is not paying rent, you can legally go through a rent court and an eviction process and get someone out. But in uh, in the other countries, for example, there's no concept of rent court. You, you would probably have a illegal squatter staying in and boy, six months, eight months go by and they are still not getting out. So there is a lot of like uh, these things that, uh, you know, one is the rule of the law, right? Uh, that helps you the system and plus this whole cash flow metrics is a whole dynamic by itself that uh, in fact you have to be very savvy about which cities or which areas you are investing and things like that and they don't work i mean even in us as we all know these cash flow numbers don't work everywhere you know you have to pick the right neighborhoods and the safe neighborhoods and you know make sure those cash flow numbers work for you you know so those are some of the things i would say at the top of my head i don't know if i answered your question there well yeah 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 you did you did so let's go deeper into how did you go from three or four houses and then later you got to 13 to 14 houses right so sure did you go to conventional, I mean, like say credit union, you should put 20% down and buy these houses in lump sure. sum? So I'll, I'll give you a quick version. Like as, as uh, many of our viewers and listeners would know, the mm-hmm. Burr strategy, as we call it, it was, mm-hmm. for lack of a better word, pretty much that, right? Uh, it wasn't called like that then, right? But I would, uh, you know, first few houses when I bought them, I bought cash with my own money, things like that. Maybe took a little bit of money uh, from hard money lender for, let's say, uh, financing the rehab and things like that. So one thing I think uh, listeners and viewers should note is that I was working. uh, I mean, I was making well over 100 grand a year. My wife was also working. So we both were IT, hyper IT, IT professionals at the time, right? So we were still making good money. But if you're buying so many houses, right? you eventually run out of your money. So all of my portfolio definitely has been a a blessing of good relationship with hard money lenders and doing the right thing. But then what actually also greatly helped was that I have been buying and holding, right? So I have always been like, you know, I still have, uh, I I mean, uh, very few houses I have sold, to be honest with you, you know, things are, you know, the only houses, like, let's say if I sold was, okay, I have only one or two houses in a certain zip code and, you know, it doesn't make sense. So we kind of sold some of them. So those were very targeted uh, sell that happened, right? So most of these houses, then, you know, we went on and on, right? And as you can see, if I bought these houses at, let's say, 2000, 2001, things like that, right? So you can quickly figure that my LTV basis was low, my cash flow was, you know, a lot higher and things like that, right? So as uh, 2008, 9, 10 came along, we had good cash flow as well. So it was all a sort of a combination of our own money, some private money, also helped by good cash flow that we had. And then, you know, we went, uh, got some line of credit over the years. We got, you know, line of credit through the banks, things like that. We would go to credit unions, refinance our properties and things like that. What 
what I never did is that uh, kind of a cyclical refinance to kind of keep uh, pooling or equity harvesting as we call it, right? So I never did that, you know? We can argue, um, you know, there are good or bad, like equity doesn't pay the bills. I, I get that, right? So, you know, sitting equity doesn't help, right? So I never did that, but I always, you know, was having good cash flow. And I always kind of kept that sort of, I was debt averse as well, right? So I wouldn't take, you know, much, much debt more than what I needed. If, if let's say, if I'm pulling a, a, a eight or 10 properties and refinancing through, let's say a credit union or a local bank, right? So I wouldn't take more than what's needed. So all of this was a combination of things like some private money, some our own proceeds, uh, of course, helped greatly by, uh, you know, the cash flow that we had and things like that. So as, as, as I think viewers will relate, as you start out, you need a lot more capital, but as you, I think, mature, you need for capital uh, tends to reduce. You can like, you know, pretty much self-fund the renovations or some uh, big acquisitions you can do by yourself. So that, that 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 is what I think I would say has been kind of my uh, story back then. Got it, got it. So the burst strategy is when you take the hard money loan and then later you refinance into a longer term loan. I uh, guess, right? That's correct, I correct, yeah, correct. Yeah. So I, I, call, I call it double closings, right? So double close I and mean, basically a burst strategy right by yeah you have- you can say that like obviously you i mean the technical term is like okay you buy renovate rent refinance and you uh-huh. know go on and repeat right so that's uh-huh. kind of the acronym for it but uh-huh. the idea is that you are using it and then you know as far as the capital stack goes in between uh, it can be a combination of things that you know you could do it and you know uh, the big part is the refinance so that you can take your money out and then go repool uh, that money into future projects. Right? Correct. Correct. And, and, and like, let's say if I have so many properties now, one can kind of get into a situation where you're going back to your older properties and refinancing them continuously. Uh-huh. I mean, you can argue good or bad, but my take on it is that, the more you refinance, you know, the more debt you have the whole time, you know, and it kind of then defeats the purpose. Like right now, I mean, I probably have uh, maybe 30% uh, debt uh, that what I had. Uh, So let's say if I took a loan out on, let's say seven or eight properties, now that loan size is so less that literally I could sell maybe two properties, like loans that were like, let's say into 700, 800 grand have shrunk into like, some 250, 300. So, you know, you can imagine the amount of equity and the amount of network that uh, all of this does. So it's a long-term game. It sure is not a, uh, you know, sort of a quick uh, strategy or a quick fix, uh, uh, like typically, you know, like a uh, sort of a market play uh, that we do within multifamily. It's a little different, you know? Yeah. So this 200 houses across how many years? Uh, you can say a good uh, 15, 16 years because 15, we, 16 were, years, got it. Yeah, so we were buying actively still like 16, 17 and, you know, like around uh, 2018 timeframe, we bought a portfolio, we bought a bunch of multifamily ourselves as well. So uh, till I think 15, 16, we were very much active buyers uh, and, mm. you know, repositioning and things like that. You know? Got it. Got it. Yeah, I did a lot of uh, equity harvesting is what you're saying. I bought... Mm-hmm. I think 2013, I bought like uh, 2013, 2015, bought like 13 houses. I, I, I 
did refi twice twice not only once <laughs> keep on refining my own houses right when right right every time we take and, out money and sometimes you have to do it i mean yeah. uh, it's not a sort of a golden rule in stone right correct, i mean correct, everybody yeah. has their own objectives and different sort of situations that present themselves right yeah, i mean yeah. you you as well can uh, i mean the great thing about uh, i guess the positive i should say is that now i can sell uh, property at a you know at a deep discount or like really lesser than Correct. a market and, and move on like i don't have much uh, stuff tied in it i mean that's kind of the ultimate goal that you have free and clear properties uh, and again it's a relative goal right i mean even if you can say that okay my portfolio is 60% free and clear i mean that's still well, well achieved oh yeah absolutely i mean it gives you just more a lot more peace of mind and it's all yours right it, so it absolutely and and yeah. and, and i mean just to share a, a little advanced strategy in all of this is that real estate as you i think alluded to earlier james is that it gives you so many tools right uh, i mean just to kind of give you some examples here is that you can take these properties and offer as a collateral to a lot of different things that you would want to do right uh-huh. so i have uh, you know as sort of years went by i would have a franchise business and i would say that hey here you go there are like you know a couple of these properties as collateral like uh, where we i mean this is my home office where i'm sitting it's about a 2 million dollar house i built it myself but uh, again at the time also i had a good relationship with the bank bank had a, uh, you know always a good uh, you know sort of uh, Uh, record on, uh, with me i mean i knew the chief credit officer things like that and they they knew me very well so they said yes we will do the construction loan and all that so i built this whole uh, single family house uh, where i live myself and it's a completely a custom house but again that's uh, these are the things that kind of come at a later stage but when you have lots of equity and lots of sort of uh, your record behind your back these all these good things happen to you and these are natural i mean i'm not like chest uh, uh, thumping or anything these are just the, the natural progression of what what can happen to you basically correct correct absolutely absolutely i mean once you work hard and build up that equity you can do a lot of things right? i mean my, sure, sure. my house is right now we are i mean we have two more to go and actually is on the market right now so we are selling it off because we have moved all to multi family right but sure. but you're right you can start from beginning build up that equity and you can just you can do a lot of things with that right so absolutely so absolutely. let's talk about how did you manage this 200 units because even when i was managing 13 houses it was like <laughs> so painful for me I, i was trying to get out from this uh, i know i know so how did you grow your organization how did you you know create that asset management and you know your company and how are you guys managing these 200 houses right right and and i tell you uh, james the key comes down to is uh, having uh, doing a good job in renovation right mm-hmm. a lot of times and i have seen this observation for i mean decades now and i've learned myself uh, through networking with a lot of experienced folks who have done landlording of like 300 400 houses all by themselves over the years so i'm not any smarter or anybody than those but what i consistently found james is that growing too fast too quickly and then doing a horrible job in your renovations you know those are the big problems that you are growing but at the same time your quality is not good and that is miserable because people will keep on calling your property management company property management company will uh, pretty much not 
want to do your houses then and things like that. So mm-hmm. coming back to my story is that I realized that. And as I shared earlier, right, we would do the same renovation again after two, three years, right? And then mm-hmm. we fixed that mistake saying, hey, let's, let's do the right thing the first time when it needs to be done. And then we avoided probably 80, 90% of the problems. And and where I think people tend to uh, kind of miss upon also is that doing a voucher-based housing is a tremendous achievement to any portfolio that they can do. And what I mean by that is that uh, when the inspections happen, people are, uh, the inspectors are looking for every single detail, the gaps, the outlets, the plumbing, the fixtures, uh, you name it, you know, whether your windows go up and things like that, whether your roof is in good shape and stuff like that. So it's a very thorough inspection. It's a hard inspection, uh, uh, as people will know. So it's a very detailed inspection. But, and what that does is that it, it keeps your quality up as well. So you have the initial inspection, you have the uh, sort of the annual inspection as well. So your properties are great. Your tenants are paying you things like that, right? So, and how we sort of manage now is that back then in 2008, uh, while I was working, uh, there was a brief uh, detour we took where we uh, gave a handful of our properties to a property management company. But after an experience of year, year and a half, we discovered that, you know what? the type of service we are getting is not great. We, we know that we can do these things ourselves in a cheaper cost-effective way. And at the same time, we can rent also properties in a much better way. So we took that management in-house and we never looked back. And, and as I shared earlier that my wife is a big part as well. Like, you know, just like your wife, James, uh, manages <laughs> the property management side of the house as well. We, so, we, do, we do the easier one. All right, right. We do so, the easy, easier, easier job, right? <laughs> <laughs> that's a, that's a, <laughs> that's putting it mildly, right? <laughs> yeah. But where we grew is that you know on the front end we would do a good job, then help by inspections and things like that. So our properties would stay up, mm-hmm. and it's it's a team. So right now, I mean, we have about four uh, guys on maintenance. We have in mm. office, we have about uh, uh, three or four people who are looking at, let's say, the books, the courts, uh, the you know, the mails and things like that. So it's it's certainly a team effort. Mm. But I think where one has to understand is that what are sort of your main pillars of success? There would be, you know, doing a good job front upfront in renovations and then having a good crew to work with. And, and, and where I think things get also easier for us is that we are very easy to deal with. If someone is calling us, we'll say, hey, fine, let me see who can come out for any maintenance, things like that. And we'll send them right away. So there's no like, uh, no delay or no dissatisfaction of sorts, you know? And mm-hmm. sometimes if we make a mistake, we are humble enough to say that, hey, you know, we apologize. I think uh, there was a mistake or things were not done right. So it's just being, you know, very honest, very upfront about it. And and I, I share your sentiment as well, James, where uh, there are days where I think you feel like, oh my God, there are just so many service tickets just suddenly came along. And, and then, you know, you have to sort of, uh, uh, discount that also by saying that, hey, you know what, there was a big storm or there was a like a huge downpour and that's why we just suddenly see a flurry of tickets uh, that happen. So it's all uh, it's all a perspective sometimes is that, okay, if you're saying, okay, we have 200 properties, you're not going to have a quiet day. You're going to see like two or three tickets uh, sometimes a day. Uh-huh. Uh-huh. But 
where I think you have to compare contrast against is, is that ratio, is that, geez, you have so many houses, so you're gonna have some activity. The question is that, is that the right problem? Or I always keep on asking myself, is that what could have been done better to avoid this? And that has kept me in good state all the time, is that doing a good job up front and then having a good team as well around you to take care of all these things. You know, I, I don't know if that helps, but- Yeah, uh, yeah, absolutely. <laughs> bit of a long answer, but I wanted to express it fully. <laughs> yeah, I know, I know. It's important because, you know, you are just, I mean, the reason why you give a long answer because you're so passionate about it and sure. you, know, mm-hmm. you want someone to really take the value out of your answer right so absolutely and and it's not a quick fix i don't want to like people to really think that oh yes in suddenly five years uh you know you can build up a portfolio i mean it it doesn't happen unless you you have a sort of a silver spoon or you're really from a, a blackstone hedge fund group and things like that that can happen but building a organic portfolio like what i uh, i have done it really takes a time i mean you will find a lot of people having you know 5 10 15 20 some houses but as you scale up i think the type of work you do the type of things you look at it does change so i'm i'm kind of a big believer in a lot of those uh, philosophies about you know as we call it rightly what got you there won't get you uh, to the next level and things like that you know like famous marshall goldsmith will say that you know all of those philosophies help and i and i love this whole real estate uh, game where i mean you're studying the accounting you're knowing you know all the different things that come with it and it's very fascinating that how much you can learn and kind of get to that next level it's not same as you know like a w2 job where you may be looking at just the it side but then you don't know how taxes would affect you or how uh, you know assets uh, uh, you need to build up and things like that i mean uh, for listeners and viewers if you're listening i would say that go go find out what a personal financial statement is and if you haven't put one give a deep thought into it that will kind of set you on a good path understanding what the assets liabilities are and understand where you stand because personally that was a big eye-opener for me that i didn't know what all these things were before back then but as i grew i was like whoa this is extremely important and extremely powerful just from a personal finance uh perspective yeah i mean when i was doing my mba i mean i I mean mean, you're a tech guy i'm a tech guy sometimes we think all tech guys are super smart guys you know we are the smartest guys out there you know we know math <laughs> we know math very well but later when i did my mba i realized oh my god <laughs> the financial guys makes a lot more money than all of us absolutely <laughs> what's, the, what's absolutely. the point of being good at math <laughs> right so uh, absolutely you, you have to be good at the financial literacy right so. I, I agree with you james and and the interesting thing i think you're alluding to it but i'll, I'll uh, maybe clarify is that sometimes we know things, but the application of it is more important. Mm-hmm. Like, for example, you would know technology, but how a technology can solve a problem is more important. And, and that's where we kind of get in the trap of that. Mm-hmm. I think knowing information and knowledge is great, but how you can apply that knowledge and information to kind of have some productive results for you. That's right. where sometimes I focus is that sort of that applied or the application of things is where I think I, I like to steer and how that can benefit someone, you know, is, is where got I it, like. Got it. So now some of the audience I can see really, they are thinking you are a lucky guy. You started 2002, you picked mm-hmm. up a lot of assets in 2008. 
So let's say right now you did not do any of this real estate right now, right? You're in 2020, 2020, you're in COVID. Mm -hmm. Do you think you can repeat the same thing that you did if you go another next 15 years? Uh, I think you can. I think you can, right? I mean, the question becomes is that, uh, and of course, it will vary. I mean, your run rate will vary what market will do and things like that, right? So, you know, prices what they were perhaps are not now. But but it's really a, uh, and, and, and to continue that thought, James, is that there are definitely people right today who are building the portfolio. It's all about how big dreams you have. It's not about, uh, oh, can I repeat the same portfolio exactly like that? It's not going to be like that. You know, it's going to be something different. The question is, do you want to be that big? You know, uh, and it's always that next level challenge. So I would say you can do it. Uh, I mean, things will vary. Uh, the question is that, do you want to do it again? You, you know, and for me, I think I have had enough, you know, and that's why I moved to multifamily. And, and, and the reason I moved to multifamily as well is that, I mean, how many houses you're going to do, right? I mean, I did a couple of hundred, uh, some now, right? So I saw the benefits, of course, of multifamily as well. My capital uh, uh, was large at the time. So I went in, uh, bought, I think it was like early 2018 or so. I went in and bought like 15 apartments uh, by myself. Then after a few months, I turned around and bought another 66 unit. This is all by myself, not syndicating or anything, uh -huh. you know. Uh -huh. But then you see the benefits of it, like, okay, you can do the value add, you can do the NOI increase and things like that, as we normally call it, right? And then, you know, it will do good to you as well. So I saw both sides of the coin, right? The question is, depends on your goals, right? You know, for a lot of investors listening, you know, or probably I should say 90, 95% of the folks do play in the single family space, you know, and they are devoted to it. They want to grow like whatever, 10, 20, 30, 40 houses. And it's great. Uh, you don't have to, I think, emulate someone's portfolio of sorts, right? I mean, you have your own race. You can do it again. Uh, the question is that, yes, you're going to be dictated by where you are investing, what the market is doing to you and things like that. I think the important fact is that whatever goals you have, as long as you can achieve them and be happy with it, I think that's, that's to me, that's more important than just trying to uh, run for a number. To me, sometimes that can always be fleeting, you know, like you can be at like uh, whatever number. I mean, for example, just to give, give you an idea, when I was at, I think, hundred some houses at the time uh, that was back in, I think 2014 or so. My CPA told me that, uh, Sakar, you can now retire. Uh, I mean, I mean, you have enough cash flow to live off of yours. Uh, I think that was like 13 or 14 at the time. And that was a rude awakening to me because I didn't know because I was so much in the, uh, in the weeds of like sort of growing and next level and this and that. And to come from a CPA, I was like, okay, Jeff, I think I understand what you're saying and I trust you, but I'll, uh, I said, you know what, I'll, I'll give a deep, uh, deep thought to it. And, mm -hmm. and sure enough, you know, after a couple of years, we slowed down, you know, kept on buying the larger apartments and things like that. So the goals change. And, and I would say, I mean, you know, it's, it's all about what you're trying to do and, you know, just, just take the successes and failures that come with it. I mean, you're going to have so many dips. I mean, I have had more dips than I really care. But it all mattered that, you know, I was on the road. Uh, you know, I was on my own journey. So 
uh, it's all about that sort of satisfaction and it's a, it's a lonely road for sure you know <laughs> mm, got it got it got it so i mean i mean we can say that you know you have good number of houses very low leverage uh, you know you're doing very well in your life right now sure mm-hmm. why do you keep on doing what you are doing uh well uh, let's look at it this way right um i am what i guess 43 44 now and retired so you have to do something and and, <laughs> and what i really love about is uh, uh, is that i love what i do right so uh, i am constantly like you know uh, upgrading our apartments for example and things like that so i just keep on to the next level so i'm uh, like for example I, i'm just in the midst of some sponsorship discussions uh, into multifamily and things like that so where i love james is that i'm a busy guy i love to stay busy and i love to do what i want to do i mean people will think crazy but i am into swimming franchise uh, right now you know i am doing podcasting myself as you know you've been a great guest of mine earlier as well right and i have some multi family interest i raise cap so i love that hustle you know uh, so it's always i mean life is about action and activity you know i mean you don't want to be you know people as you would relate james that the retired is a concept where when suddenly we say that someone is retired meaning you know he's on a lounge chair watching tv and news right. and all that that's the picture we get it's not about yes i'm 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 basically financially free i can do what i want to do but i'm really passionate about doing stuff i love the hustle on the road and i love to you know still answer calls and see how can i add value and things like that i mean my admins love uh, our office saying mr sakara how quiet it is and i tell them that hey say it's harmony you got to understand that you do things in life and you're helping them you're doing things right and that brings harmony all around you you know i never had fights with my contractors i have had probably a few fights uh, uh, with my tenants and i mean that just comes with the, the territory but it's all about having that harmony and and once you have that peace that's your mental peace and then you're going back to your sort of whatever you want to do and that's how it is i mean for for all i care yes i could sit uh, sit quiet and just just be myself but uh, <laughs> i guess the god has built me in in, in such a way that i want to carry on and i want to do bigger better things and that's where i'm at <laughs> yeah yeah exactly exactly so sakai it has been really a pleasure having you here can you tell our audience how to get hold of you or or your company sure so people can find me at uh, facebook instagram linkedin i'm all active there uh, premiumcashflow.com is our company uh, premiumcashflow.com also has a podcast uh, i regularly hold podcast about uh, almost five times a week now uh, we have that podcast with various guests uh, you can reach me at uh, like info info at premiumcashflow.com uh there you know you'll find lots of news articles uh, reports things like that so uh, i'm very much access- accessible uh, in all sorts of media for example got it awesome thank you for coming and adding tons of value for our audience and listeners thank you i appreciate it james uh, you're doing a great job so continue i appreciate you as well <laughs> thank you thank you